Okay. So um, welcome everybody to this event today here. We're really grateful to be gathered together to have a discussion with Douglas Sanderson and Andrew Stobo Snyderman about their brilliant, creative, clever, and important book, Valley of the Birdtail and Indian Reserve, A White Town and the Road to Reconciliation. And uh, it's a wonderful season to be gathering here. Um, we're here on the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe Nation and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And winter is a time of storytelling as the snow blankets the earth and the spirits have gone to rest and the power of these stories can come out in a particularly uh, powerful way. And the stories that are contained in this book are ones that are very instructive, um, both for us as individuals and in how we're living our lives, but also uh, as nations, uh, both First Nations and Canada as a nation, in kind of where we're headed uh, right now. So we have a mixed group here today. Some are coming over from the law school, but we also have others uh, who are doing their undergrad and are coming in from the community and uh, different departments. And I, I think that's really the power of, you know, storytelling with this is that it can speak to a diversity of people and where we're at and we'll all have different perspectives coming into this. So we'll look forward to spending about an hour where uh, I'll put some different questions to Douglas and Andrew, and then we'll have time to open it up for you to ask questions as well. And I wanted to thank uh, Stephanie Clancy, who's one of our JD students at the law school, who emailed Stacia Loft and I about this book, which she read this summer. Um, she came across it, picked it up, read it, and was so moved by the content that she wanted to bring this to Queens. And it, hey. yeah, <laughs> it just so happened that Douglas was my first year property law professor, um, as it was for you and as he was for you, Andrew. And um, it's wonderful to get to visit as friends, as colleagues, uh, and as learners who are trying to understand practical things that we can be doing to um, better our relationships and better the places that we live. So uh, I'll begin with some bios here and then we'll jump into the questions. So Andrew Snobo Snyderman, Stobo Snyderman is a writer, lawyer, and Rhodes Scholar who grew up in Montreal. Um, he is an incredible author as those of you or writer, as those of you who have read the book already know. He's written for the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and Maclean's. Uh, he has argued before the Supreme Court of Canada, served as the human rights policy advisor to the Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he also worked for a judge of South Africa's Constitutional Court. And he's coming here today via New York, mm -hmm, where he lives uh, with his partner and, and young child. And Douglas Sanderson is the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and has served as a Senior Policy Advisor to Ontario's Attorney General and Minister of Indigenous Affairs. 
uh, Douglas is Swampy Cree from the Opasquiat Cree Nation and is a member of the Beaver Clan. And um, I am Lindsay Boros. I teach at the Faculty of Law here at Queen's. I'm a member of the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation. I'm Otter Clan, and it's an honor to be here. So thank you both. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, so to get into this, um, by way of background at the law school here, we ordered 40 copies of this book and put it in the capable hands of our librarians to distribute these books to students who wanted to come and read. And we currently have zero copies of the book left. So that's really nice uh, to think about, um, you know, taking up these 300 pages approximately and really sitting with them and thinking about them. And for those of you who haven't yet read the book, Hopefully this conversation is just your segue uh, into getting into the actual stories, um, but then everything else that can flow when a story calls us to action. So for those of us who haven't yet read the book, um, can you begin by telling us a bit about what the book is about and what led you to write it together? Sure. So maybe uh, thank you so much, Lindsay, uh, for having us here today. And thank you all for uh, coming out. And um, it feels odd to be flanked by my former students and yet appear so youthful. It must be, must be hard for you all. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll do the uh, uh, what it's about. For, okay. So Valley of the Birdtail is really, um, in its own way, it's a history of Canada. And um, Canada is a big place. And so a story like that, you can tell a lot of different ways. And the way we chose to tell this story uh, was by focusing on two families uh, who live, each of them in a community uh, side by side across a river. Um, one of the communities is uh, Ukrainian immigrants in a little town called Rossburn. And right across the river is the Weiwei Sikapo Indian Reserve. And we follow the families over many, many generations, starting when the towns get founded. The town and the reserve get founded more or less at the same time, right around Confederation. And we follow them for 150 years into the present day. And when you do that, uh, you get to see a few different things. One of the things you get to see is the story, the remarkable story, of Ukrainian immigration and settlement of the prairies, which was something, I mean, I grew up some on the prairies and there were all these Ukrainians around. War started and everyone said, oh, there's more Ukrainians in Canada than any other place other than Russia. And you know, like, why? Like, how did that happen? Was a question I never thought to ask myself. Uh, but in Valley of the Bird Tale, we tell you why, we show you how that happened. It's also um, the story of Indigenous people's encounter with the administrative state and the story of what happens if we took two communities that were side by side, founded at the same time, and one of those communities we supported culturally, economically, gave them access to markets, we gave them decent schools for their children, access to land, and another community right across the river, what if we took that community, we did exactly the opposite. We stole their kids and gave them shitty schools. We denied them access to the economy. We denied them access to land and to credit. What would happen? And it turns out that this is actually an experiment that we've run 
all across the country. All across the country, we find community and reserve right across the river from each other. And so this story isn't just a story of these two communities in Saskatchewan. It's a story that explains how we got to where we are today. When we look out and see the economic disparity as between Indigenous and settler people, we can see as the story unfolds in Valley of the Birdtail, you get to see how that happens. How is it that one community is able to thrive and another suffers um, under poverty? So that's what Valley of the Birdtail is about, the history of Canada. And then towards the end, we talk about what it would mean and what it would really mean if we took seriously the idea of equality, if we really wanted that, what would it mean? What would we have to do and what would it cost? So we talk a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Stobo now to talk about the origins of the book. Thanks, Douglas. Thank you. And I want to say, yay, there's so many people here. Thank you for coming. And there's people there. Untold two-dimensional people. Hello. Yeah. Stadium <laughs> skills. Thank you for coming. And thank you, Professor Burroughs, for hosting this. And I want to give a shout out to my mom. Sarah Pritchard, thank you for coming with me. She went to medical school here. And Josh um, Carden was my wife's beloved thesis advisor who, who did her LLM here. So it's great to be here. And my wife, Mariella, is here in spirit. So thank you for coming. Thank you for getting the books. And I'm glad they got taken up. So uh, where did this book come from? It started for me as a law student. And I was someone with a very, very little background with these issues. And I was in some con law class. And as a throwaway remark, I learned about this issue of disparities between on-reserve and off-reserve services. So child welfare services, schools, policing, all the services were worse on-reserves, which of, of course is where hundreds of thousands of people live. And I, as a law student, at a very abstract level, just could not wrap my head around why that was legal or okay and how that happened. So in, at some level, there was this prompt and I felt a need to find a story to explain that problem, almost to explain it to myself as a Canadian. How did this come to be? And so I spent a long time looking for the right story to communicate that. And that's what brought me to these two communities in Manitoba, where, as Douglas was saying, you have a reserve and a town very close and unbelievably distant in so many ways. And that's the story, I think, at some level of our country. So as a law student, I first called people hundreds and thousands of kilometers away over the phone, and I met some of the characters in this story. And it was only after, five years later, after I graduated, after Douglas had taught me, that I thought to myself, I think there's more here. And so I flew up to Manitoba and there was a couple, a year, two years of work, and maybe we'll talk about this more, of getting to know people, doing the research. And at that point, it was just me. And I would check in with Douglas every six, eight months, say, hey, Douglas, there's this issue I, I don't quite get. And he would always be supportive. But I think there was a part of me that, that thought, I can do this on my own. If I'm motivated enough, if I'm thoughtful enough, if I show enough respect in people's homes, I can tell this story. And I came to realize that that was wrong in this case. There was no way to do this story justice 
of a story of a community in, that's indigenous and another community that's non-indigenous. And it's really about two families on my own. And so that's when I reached out to Douglas and you should all write books with your professors, of course. Say, hey, Douglas, I'm, I think uh, if we do this together, it could be so much better. And there are these huge gaps that I feel like I can't quite get there. And so we became a team. And if this book is as good as Lindsay was graciously saying it was, it's because we were a team on this. And I think, of course, that's not just true about this book. It's true about this much bigger project that's happening at this university in our country. This reconciliation project is a work of teamwork, if it's going to work. And I think this book is just a small, small illustration of that, I hope. Thanks so much to you both for those, um, the summary of what the book is about, and then how you came together to write this. And I do love the different layers that are at play here, both like the meta kind of process of writing the book, as well as the content. And so turning to some of the content, something that struck me was um, the way that you introduce us as readers to both some contemporary families in Rossburn and as well as Wewe Jigabawing, as and then you introduce us to these uh, historical characters that have been so integral in the shaping of Canada. Yet, for me, as someone who did a degree in Indigenous studies, albeit in the United States, I hadn't heard of um, Clifford Sifton. And he is this really important uh, person in the story you're telling. And so I wonder if you could take a moment to introduce all of us to who was he, uh, what impact did he have on these two towns and, and ultimately generations of families that you uh, bring us into their world? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, Part of, part of the story of Clifford Sifton is an, an amazing, heroic story that, we're, that we want to share, which is a story, as Douglas was saying, of Ukrainian immigration to Canada, to the prairies. And then, as now, Russia was oppressing Ukrainians. And at the end of the 19th century, Clifford Sifton led this amazing effort to go recruit Ukrainians in vast numbers to come to Canada. So Canada sent thousands, literally thousands of government agents to Europe to pay the free passage of people to come to the prairies to work on farms that were given out more or less for free because the Canadian federal government was desperate for people to populate these and work these farms. And what's heroic about this guy is that these immigrants, although it may be hard to believe today, were not seen as white. They were seen, all the worst things you can imagine being said about immigrants were said about Ukrainians. And so they faced real racism. And if any of you have any Ukrainian friends or family members, you know that this is a very deeply felt story to this day of encountering real racism in Canada and of kind of enduring that racism. And this man, Clifford Sifton, who's the Minister of the Interior, is in charge of immigration, he stands up for them. As so many Canadians are being racist, he's saying, 
No, we need to welcome them to make our country better. And Ukrainians come to our country and be Ukrainian Canadians. In some sense, he's this first articulation of multiculturalism in my reading of Canadian history. And so that is amazing. And that's a story that's better known. But there's this other part of Clifford Sifton, which is less well known, which is that he was also in charge of Indian affairs. And so the very same guy, while he's doing all this stuff, is in charge of the past system, which maybe we'll talk about more, which is a system that made it illegal for status Indians to leave a reserve without a federal agent giving you permission. It was illegal to sell anything on a reserve to someone off reserve that you grew if you didn't have permission of a federal agent. Clifford Sifton was in charge of that. He expanded the residential school system. Many members of this community that we're writing about died in the schools that this man helped set up. And so he's doing all these awful things. He's the paragon of the Canadian state oppressing one group of people at the same time that he's this inspiring example of what Canada could and has been in some ways. And so that paradox, I think, is not just true of him, of course, or just true of then. It's still true of today. And I think he's an important part of our book story, but also of our country story, to find a way to say there's some parts of this that are inspiring and positive, and there's some parts of it that are awful. And we have to find a way to hear both of the sides of that story. Yeah, it really makes me think about like trickster stories that are so common across many Indigenous storytelling traditions. And the idea being that we're all a little bit complicated and we do things that don't always hold up to the standards that or values that maybe we speak to. Um, our actions instead produce something different. And I think we're introduced to a number of profound tricksters in this book. And as you've laid out, like Sifton's role in um, kind of expanding the the hard hand of the Indian Act and uh, residential school systems was so um, hurtful at the same time as so many wonderful things were happening. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that he's able to um, like put his finger directly on the attributes of citizenship that make people feel like full citizens. So when he's out, you know, protecting these Ukrainian immigrants, like he's he's saying things like, it's so important that you maintain your language and your traditions, your traditional dances and your cultures. And these are exactly the things that he's putting his thumb on in indigenous communities. Like the very factors that he realizes he needs to promote in one community are exactly the, the forces he's pressing down with on another community. So it's it, like he's self-aware in this incredible way. It's a very 19th century feeling character. But like Astobo says, right, we still have really weirdly differential immigration policies, right? Like we favor Ukrainians. They're white. And we don't do the same thing for people from Sudan or from Palestine. Um, and so there's a way in which Sifton is both very 19th century, but he's also 21st century. He's also a reflection of the way we still manage our external affairs. 
Yes. Um, apart from the book that stood out to me, given my position here at Queens and thinking about those of you in the room here who have different connections to Queens, is um, in 1927, he, Clifford Sifton received an honorary degree from Queens University. So he was here in Kingston speaking to a group of the Queens community. Um, he was being celebrated for much of this work that he did. And I would like to take a moment to read the excerpt that Douglas and Stobo included in this book and then take a moment to kind of reflect a bit on um, this, again, thinking about reconciliation and what does this mean at institutional levels and just across the street here where some of us are coming from at the law school. Uh, it used to be the Sir John A. Macdonald Law School. And a few years ago, it was denamed. And that was um, quite a process of kind of truth gathering, truth telling, in, and then coming to that decision. And uh, I think there, there's another opportunity to reflect here on Clifford Sifton and, and his interaction with Queen's. So it says here, um, I'm just going to read the page because it's so well written. Yeah. In 1927, Sifton gave a graduation speech at Queen's University, which was awarding him an honorary doctorate. He was 65 years old, long retired from politics, and just two years away from a heart attack that would end his life. Quote, few, I think, have had occasion to see more of Canada and Canadian conditions than I have. He told the graduating students, you are Canadians. What does that call to your mind? That you are one of 9 million people to whom Providence has committed perhaps the greatest heritage that has ever been given to an equal number of people. Sifton paused and added, nine millions of white people. Sifton argued that Canada was particularly blessed because it did not have to contend with the usual litany of obstacles facing other countries. No Negro problem, no yellow problem, no slum problem, because our climate does not favor and in fact does not permit the existence of such large slum populations. He did not even mention, did not even bother mentioning the quote Indian problem as some of his peers did. You are part of these 9 million people, he continued, knowing his audience, and by your academic training and your intellectual equipment, you are called upon to lead them. The resources of Canada are before you. It is the part of these 9 million to determine how these resources shall be employed, in short, to make or mar Canada. Do your part, and the future of the country will take care of itself. So that is part of the speech that he gave. So I wonder what kinds of thoughts, um, reflections come to your mind as we bring this forward um, here in this room today. Ooh. Well, um, so it's been a while since I've actually gone through or heard uh, that passage. Um, so one thing that occurs to me is like, unlike everyone else in the country, it appears that Sifton thought the Ukrainians were white. <laughs> so, that, so there's that at least. But um, 
I think it's probably hard for anyone in their present time to really understand the prejudices of their era. And I can't imagine that there was a room full of Queens grads who were sitting there outraged at what they heard, right? I'm pretty sure they were sitting there thinking, yeah, that's right. And I think having heard that again, maybe as they entered into their senior years, many of them might reflect that, oh, wait, those were, <laughs> that was really racist. Can't believe he said that. And, it, you know, it, it makes me wonder sometimes, too, like how, what is it today that we are not paying attention to? What words are being spoken that we're going like, yeah, that's all right. When in our children, when is my daughter going to look back and go, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> um, so I mean, it, it cautions a certain uh, skepticism, I think, and a certain humility about what our views are today and the way that we should march them out into public. You know, the one thing that I wanted to say, too, about Sifton is I, I don't think we made it really clear, is the magnitude of the immigration, right? Like we're talking maybe 16,000 immigrants a year. And then when Sifton takes up the reins, it's 160,000 a year and more the next year and more the next year for a decade. So we're coming towards a million people in a population of 9 million people, right? A hugely influential population that gets dropped into a prairies that Sifton had spent the last five years clearing out, right? And making efforts to ensure that there was Having done that, now he needs to populate the place. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I think I realized in writing Valley was the way in which all of these various forces fit together over time, right? Like, I have experienced all of these injustices as one-offs, right? Like, moving to reserves is like, oh, that's an injustice. But when you see that it's actually, it's part of this much larger plan and it's one step after another that all the wrongs interlock, right? Like the reason you don't want people to leave the reserves is because you've taken their children to residential schools, right? So one policy locks into the other. And I think that being a trying to see uh, in the present day the way that our current policies are reflections of our past policies, the way that we've integrated positions that we might have held in the 1950s that we're still propagating today. Um, you know, Sifton reminds me to be cautious uh, about um, what I feel really strongly about and to really make sure that I'm questioning uh, and trying to be aware that the views that I have now I might come to regret some time later. I want to sort of like be open to that as a scholar and as an academic. I mean, it's, I think it's our responsibility first as academics to be that canary to go like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, I'm not sure that's right anymore. <laughs> like that, that view may be out, outdated. And yet I think it's also the case that the universities in general can be among the slowest institutions to catch up to. I, certainly my institution, the University of Toronto, um, and I continually have to remind people that the University of Toronto is actually older than Canada. So we change very, <laughs> very, very, very slowly. So, but I think that's the lesson that I, that, that I take from Sifton is, is a certain, in, in my today time, to be a little more cautious about the views that I'm advocating and to really think about how that might uh, reflect on me and us uh, in the future.
Beautiful. Yeah, it's an important call to humility, I think. Um, um, also, last night I learned that the comedian Stephen Colbert uh, did grade eight right here in Kingston, Ontario. No, oh, sorry, yeah. Um, uh, oh, John Oliver. Yeah, John Oliver went to grade eight in Winston Churchill Public School here in Kingston, Ontario last night. Yeah, just one year he had an aunt. They shipped him over. And, uh, he did one. He loved it, apparently. So there you go. Famous people in Kingston. <laughs> Fun facts. Yeah. Fun facts. Love it. Um, so, yeah, then thinking about um, moving into this more contemporary moment, and we're introduced in the book to Maureen Two Voice, um, her mother, Linda Jandrew, a little bit to her grandfather, Michael. And then, th so these are the people living on the Weiwezigavo First Nation Reserve. And then in Rossburn, we're introduced to the Luhoi family. The Hoi family. So we have um, Nelson and then Troy. And each of these people um, are really rich. They're dynamic. They've had these powerful experiences in their lives. And I was wondering if you can describe for us, how did you meet these families, these people? And then how do their stories weave together in important ways? Thank you. It's amazing you got all those character names, right? <laughs> it's like they're alive in your mind, which is the hope. So that's awesome. So I was thinking, we were talking earlier about research method. And I think this is a book where it was an artistic method, by which I mean it was improvisation and things working and not working, which is maybe what all research method really is. But in this case, it was I show up on this reserve, having asked for permission by a chief and council in the first place to set foot there and be asking questions of people having had some phone conversations in the years before and hanging out, going to the school and talking to people. And, and Maureen Two Voice was someone I met pretty early on and we hit it off and she invited me over to her office to keep having the conversation. And I was joking with her a few months ago where I was saying, hey Maureen, did you think that when you invited me to chat for a few more minutes, you were going to be stuck with me for five years? <laughs> and and uh, that's what it became. It, it was the beginning of a much larger conversation. And so, as you know, better than me, perhaps, and better than most, a book like this is built on relationships with real people. We're using their real names and they're partners in this story. And I think the highest compliment we've ever received about this book came from Maureen, who, you know, her, the University of Winnipeg was asking her about the book. And she said, this book felt like, it didn't feel like they were writing about us. They were writing with us. And she wrote, she actually writes the afterword of the book, which I think is maybe the best part of the book. But with Maureen and with everyone else in the book who's alive, it was a process of spending time together, wherever it was, in their home, having meals with them, meeting their families, and slowly earning their trust. And some people 
are open to speaking with you at first, and some people are not, and you need to earn that trust. And I should say that it wasn't easy for me in either community, because in the town, people are worried that, you know, I'm just some big city guy who's going to make them look like a bunch of racist hicks. And that's a real concern. And of course, on the reserve, there's a very heightened sense of, you know, are you just going to be another research who misrepresents or appropriates and benefits from this research? It's a palpable concern for people. And the real answer is that it takes years of talking and at the very outset explaining, here's what we're trying to do. You know, do you want to be a part of this conversation? And you will have control over your name. And in fact, everyone in this book, even though the publisher would never have wanted us to do this, we, sh we shared all the text with people. We kind of broke up the text and mailed it to people some in hard uh, version in some cases, all the texts about them and said, what do you think? Are you okay with this? And anyone who's done any kind of research knows that that's the most terrifying moment because someone could just say, I don't like it. You did a bad job. This misrepresents me. I want nothing to do with this. And then the whole book collapses. And thankfully, everyone said, you can keep all of it. It's a few mistakes you need to correct. And here's some more, so I can give you more context to make it better. And I think that shows that the, we did this the right way. And it wasn't a hurried process, and it was a partnership, and it took years and years and years, which I think is how it should be. And the book, I think those of you who haven't opened it up, the hope is that it kind of has the texture of a novel in places where you're actually in their lives. And that requires a lot from people. That, that's hundreds of hours of conversations where people are sharing intimate details about themselves. And no one comes off looking as a saint. There's no blameless, perfect people in this story because none of us are that way. And they're all paradoxical in their own way as we are, all are. So it's a long way of saying that it took a long time and I'm very happy to say that everyone in this story chose to be a part of it at the end using their real names. And when, when, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be living in a small community as both of these are, where the, the whole town and the whole reserve has read about you. And I'm happy to say that to this day, people are going up to Maureen and Linda and, and so forth and saying, first of all, can I give you a hug? And second of all, thank you for sharing these stories. Because people, the whole point of the book is that these are just six people, but they're all of us in some way. There's parts of all of us in them. And we tried to write it in a way that re resonated with a much broader audience of people who have never set foot on a reserve in some cases, who've never set foot in Manitoba. But that's the ambition of the book. And I hope that works for at least some of you. Uh, I just want to add that uh, my wife, Tanya, who's joined us, she, she might be perfect. She, she might be perfect, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, on this, this point of kind of thinking about how the stories weave together, um, I wonder if we could talk for a minute about the permit system in particular, because you helpfully 
clarify for us this, this past system, which was about controlling the physical mobility of status Indians kind of on and off the reserve. And then the permit system is about controlling the economic mobility. So, so whether or not you can sell, for example, the cow that you raised um, as a status Indian to someone in a neighboring town. And I was talking with this a bit uh, about this a bit to my husband. And, you know, he was like, well, why would they have wanted like thinking about the permit system, why would they have wanted to stunt um, First Nations abilities to engage in economic activity? Like what was the purpose behind that? And I think a real beauty in the book is you're not just like, oh, racism. It's like you really think like, what was the philosophy? that was operating here? Like what was happening at the time? So I wonder if you could um, speak to us a bit more about the permit system and what was going Sure, so um, yeah, so the permit system is about in part controlling economies and the um, you know, Indian affairs at the time is really, you know, it's top, it, 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 the local officials have uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of discretionary authority. So what you find is that the whims of local administrators can work at odds with larger policy goals. So when you know what makes the clearing of the prairies possible is the destruction of all of the buffalo. Um, and that means that suddenly everyone in the prairies who relied on the buffalo, you know, as their primary source of food and as their clothing and as their housing. And so the idea was that you'll be moved off, off the land, onto reserves, and you'll take up farming. And that's how you will become sufficient. But uh, immediately it became clear that indigenous farmers were now going to be in direct competition with their settler neighbors. And so uh, that's part of what explains uh, the permit system. Um, and I think that the other part maybe um, has to do, well, let me just say that the, um, the other part of the permit system, I think has to do with the way in which indigenous people are um, permitted to farm. And so uh, under the auspices of local authorities, um, it's determined in, in Weiwei at least and surrounding communities uh, that no one should be able to use any modern farming equipment. Indians should not be able to, they should use wooden hoes um, to, to break the land. And the reason was that this sort of this hard work in the starvation that this would inevitably lead to uh, would teach people about efficiency and self-sufficiency. And it's really like it's the some of the hardest parts of writing the book were to come across the journals of like actual government officials saying like starvation will do them good. You know, that's how they're going to learn about justice. Um, and what's sort of, you know, more shocking, I think, is that the prohibition on selling uh, produce and other farm um, goods uh, to non-Indians on reserve 
that prohibition was in place until 2014, right? Like that limitation on economy, right? That control over participation in the economy, that control over competition in the marketplace um, has extended like right up until the present day practically. So the permit system uh, provided sort of economic control and it made it so that the competition between indigenous and uh, settler farmers was greatly reduced. In, in Rossburn, one of the things that happens that's super great for everyone is they build a railway with a, a, a grain facility right near the town so that the Rossburn farmers are able to bring all of their grain and goods to market really easily. Uh, but indigenous people are not allowed access to that. So there's like this strict division of authorities and possibilities uh, within the system itself. And part of what your research seemed to show was that almost like lack of knowledge that the people in the town of Rossburn had around the different system that was regulating people on reserves uh, ability to engage in farming. And so I just find that really fascinating, like the power of education, I guess, to like bring us together and understand more. Because what you heard talking to people often was the sense of like, oh, the lazy Indian. Yeah. yeah, like the degree to which the communities don't talk to each other today is not any, well, it's getting better today. But 10 years ago, it was the same as it was 100 years ago, I think. Do you want, do you want to talk a little yeah. more about it? Yeah. I mean, you're gesturing at something that is happening still all around this country, which is if people aren't doing well, we assume it's their fault. You know, this broader policy explanation that, oh, you, you weren't actually allowed to sell what you're growing without a federal agent to sign off on it, which made it really hard to sell stuff, that your neighbors in the town got a railway stop and you weren't allowed to use any kind of mechanization of farming to make it harder on you, that whole policy apparatus kind of falls away. And you can just look across the valley from the town to the reserve and see people in poverty and say, oh, they must be not trying that hard. And we're trying really hard. And I think this reminds me of a second part of your earlier question, which was important, which I didn't get to, which was, the, you know, why are the ways in which these two stories overlap and relate to each other. And why are we even writing a book about a town and a, and a reserve in the first place? And I think it's because part of it is we want to show the ways in which the stories are similar. That as an immigrant to this country, you face real hardship, not just Ukrainians, but many, many, many immigrants. And we want to affirm and celebrate the story of resilience and hardship, because that means a lot to a lot of communities. And when we speak to Ukrainians and many other people, they want to, that story to be recognized and affirmed. And it's an part, important part of who they are and how they see themselves. But we're also trying to layer this other story that's happening across the river and asking people to see both. So part of what we're trying to do is to show that there's a lot of parallels, there's a lot of commonalities. And to give just the most obvious example that we talk about, there's this past system, as I was briefly referring to earlier, which imprisons people on reserve. You can't visit friends. You can't visit your kids at school. You cannot go get a job. You cannot go off reserve to pursue your education. You cannot go 
elsewhere to practice a ceremony without permission, which is the point, of course, because they don't want you to do it. And I think it's on page 126, not to be too obsessive about it. There's a photo of a pass that a parent needed to get in to visit their child at residential school. And when you see that image, I think you get a sense of how awful it is to be managed in this way. Ukrainians are also interned, imprisoned during World War I because Ukraine was allied with the, with the Tsar, who was our enemy. And so they're interned on one side of the river and people are being interned because of the past system. And part of what we're trying to do this book is to say, hey, you actually have a lot in common, which of course we do. We have so much in common with our neighbors but we have a hard time seeing it. So that's part of the project. And part of it is to say there are important differences. It's not like everyone faced racism and just needs to get over it. As Douglas was saying, the policy treatment on both sides of the river was totally different generation after generation. And it adds up. And it helps explain why when you look around our country, it is as unequal as it is. And so we're also trying to show the divergences. So the point of telling the two families is to bring us in conversation with each other to say, actually, we have a lot in common, but actually it's also quite different. And can we find a way to talk about the commonalities and recognize the differences as a point of bridging or creating more conversation than there is? So maybe I'll just draw together a, a few threads from uh, our conversation to now. And I, I think it has to do with the way Estobo started to talk about the <clears throat> there's something <clears throat> about the Ukrainian story that's really, really important. And what's really, really important, and I think what we're able to show, and I think this is very common much more broadly, is that the Ukrainians are so proud of their accomplishments, right? They're eventual economic self-sufficiency, right? Like their story of overcoming. And when that's in your head, right? When that's the story you carry with you everywhere you go, you look across the river and you think, we worked really hard. That's how we got here. What's wrong with that? And that's, you know, that's the story that I think a lot of us carry around with, uh, like it's hard for us to really see and be empathetic towards other communities. And a lot of, you know, the current tensions, you know, like just the racism that exists in uh, Rossburn today and communities all like it, really centers around these stories about, uh, about communities and about the difference between communities and a failure to, to see and to understand and to, to to be able to recognize that other communities' experiences were different. And so different things happened, different results came. But people, uh, certainly the, the people of Rossburn, are so entrenched with the story of their own overcoming that it's like they don't have any room left over uh, to be generous with the histories of other people. And so, you know, like I was saying earlier about how you know, Sifton makes me want to be careful about how I think about things. Like, that's another example of how um, people, like, they don't think they're racist, right? 
they think that they worked really hard to get where they did, and they did. And that, and because that story about themselves is true, it makes it even harder to see that there are other stories that have different outcomes, and that that's not the fault of the people uh, whose outcomes are poorer. Um, what we hope with Valley of the Bird Tale is to be able to show much more broadly uh, how it is that Indigenous communities ended up uh, in the position that they currently are, so that people, we hope, will be able to celebrate their own stories of immigration while leaving in their hearts space for the other stories where the outcomes have not been as positive. Um, and hopefully as a way of driving towards some kind of future and systemic change where we actually are willing to accept the costs uh, that will come uh, with a, a, a true commitment to equality uh, as between indigenous and, and settling peoples. That's really well put. And I think it, um, you know, leads into the end of your book where you are presenting the, this hopeful possibility, like practically, how can we work towards at a structural level, some of the changes that are necessary to create more equity across the river um, and beyond. And, you know, like listening to you both talk. So we have all these individual examples where it's like, oh, you engage in deep listening, you collaborate, you visit. Um, the process, right, has been an example of of these these more individual to individual levels of um, reconciliation. And so can you paint a picture for us what you think Canada could be doing um, related to you talk about taxation and land back and um, what is what is your message of hope? <laughs> So thank you, Lindsay. So I, I've noticed that uh, we also talk about the book as though it's hopeful and um, people often refer to it as hopeful and I feel hopeful about it. But when I look back and I actually look at the text, it, it's not like it's, it, it's not hopeful in, in, an, a, in an inspiring kind of way. It strikes me as being hopeful because it's the first time that I've seen people really start to think about like the future, like for the first time, which is, you know, we've been in this relationship for a very long time. But what we tend to talk about are things like programs or measures of success. But we haven't seen a lot of some kind of systematic way of thinking about like, what is this relationship about? And how do we get there? Um, and so that's what we try to talk about um, towards the end of Valley. And what we think about is, you know, that, right, so, you know, we start, we focus a lot on education in the book. And um, this communities, uh, Rossburn and Weiwei, at some point, um, they managed to join their school districts together so that um, Indian and non-Indian kids are going to the same schools, high schools. Um, and that's nowhere else in Canada. It's a big success story. And one of the things that made it possible was that the Weiwei School District got increased funding, that they were given enough money per student to match 
um, the contributions of it, it, within provincial schools. And so we sort of got to that point, and you can go like, okay, yay, great story, and we're done. The answer is equal funding. Um, and, and in fact, we people some, sometimes people have gone like, but shouldn't you stop at the equal funding part? But you know, both of us having worked in politics, uh, funding is discretionary. We understand, and that means that we could decide today that we are going to have equal funding when it comes to education, when it comes to social welfare, when it comes to um, healthcare. Uh, but we might decide five years from now that we're not going to do that. And in fact, the cruelest trick of the Canadian government is to not cut funding for Indigenous programming. Instead, you just hold the funding level steady against inflation. Right? And so you continually give less and less money per capita. And it's also the fastest growing population in Canada, uh, young Indigenous people. So what we imagine then is, how do we solve the education problem, but how do we fix the rest of it too? And the basic idea is this. We sort of think that if the communities themselves were the ones setting the funding levels for their schools, they'd fund them properly. Right, that people would look after their own children. And so how do they do that? Well, one of the problems that we see is that indigenous people don't have access to an economy for the most part. You know, there's very little ability to tax on reserve. There's very little economic activity. There's no resource activity. And, and so there's no way for indigenous governments to raise money. Like taxation is what governance is about. You raise money and you spend it. Indigenous communities are basically statutorily prohibited from doing this, which means everything in that community has to be paid for by another level of government. So imagine the city of Kingston, and you're like, well, there's a lot of potholes. Maybe we should fix them. Like, well, I guess we can ask Ottawa if they're willing to increase the community funding for Kingston this year so we can fix our potholes. Like, oh, no, they're not. Oh, well. Well, I mean, it's not that bad, right? We could just take money from the school and fix the roads, right? Which is, that's the position that Indigenous communities are in because they're unable to raise their own money. So how do we fix that? Well, we imagine that if we could convince uh, provinces, the federal government, to provide a much larger land base for indigenous communities over which they could govern. So we're not talking about, like, the thing about land back is it, it's like property-based. We're not talking about property. We're just talking about which order of government sets the rules for various regions in the country. And so we can imagine an indigenous authority in northern Ontario that is going to be the one that's going to tax the resources. Like they live there. They should be the ones making those decisions. Now, it's also the case we recognize that one of the things we, we've also come to realize is that we're not going to advance a public policy that makes losers of everyone who's not an Indian, right? Like that is not, no one is going to vote for that. No government is going to come forward and go, I got a great idea. So, you know, in the words of my colleague, Michael Trebilko, like, how do we look out for losers? And so it is another feature of uh, the Canadian Constitution that we have a commitment to equalization, this idea that everywhere in the country, no matter where you live, you should have equal access to government services. And we achieve this through this equalization formula that takes federal money and gives it to provinces, depending on how well they're doing economically. 
Uh, and that system ensures that Canadians have relatively equal access to healthcare and education and all other government services. And it works everywhere except on Indian reserves. Just does not apply there. So why wouldn't we think about expanding the system to include not just First Nations communities, but these larger territories that we would have them govern over? with the idea that they would raise more money than they would need for their own communities, and they would put that back into the formula to, as a way of offsetting the provincial losses of the economic activity that Indians are now taxing instead of the provinces. Like finding ways to like meet in the middle, to find a way like, you know, again, so we're not talking about taking people's stuff. We don't want to kick people off the land. We just want a different order of government to the one that's setting your taxes and picking up your garbage. Like that's the basic idea. And this is not uh, unheard of in the United States. We use this example um, from a recent US Supreme Court case called McGirt, which concerned uh, ultimately the question of whether or not uh, Western Oklahoma had ever been delisted as an Indian reservation, right? Like it was originally set aside as Indian country, then oil gets discovered and then all these people move in. The state of Oklahoma sets up, which is all great. But did you do that legal step where you said, hey, this is also no longer an Indian reserve? And the U.S. Supreme Court determined, no, they hadn't. And with the stroke of a pen, they turned Western Oklahoma back into an Indian reserve. And it wasn't like, you know, people were upset about it, but really it was just a question of like, who's going to pick up my garbage, right? Like just all that happened is the nature of the taxation. Who do you pay your taxes to and who sets the rules? That's all that changed. Everyone's still driving their cars and living in their same houses and apartments because we're not talking about land. We're not talking about land back. We're just talking about jurisdiction over territory. And we're talking about a world where we're sharing that jurisdiction with indigenous communities as a way of allowing them to be the ones who are taxing their own land base, providing what's left over to the rest of us. You know, in a way, right, like this is all, this is what happens now, right? Like all of the wealth of Ontario comes from the North, right? A billion dollars a year in stumpage fees. Right? So in effect today, you know, the North, Indigenous territories, they're fueling our economies. They're the ones who are fixing our potholes. And so all we would do is think about a world where Indigenous people were actually signing the checks that they sent south to us to build our communities. And in this way, we imagine Indigenous communities will fix themselves, right? Like, how do you fix clean running water? I don't know. Why don't we empower the people who live there to be able to afford to do it themselves. Like we don't have to figure this out for every community. What we need to do is empower those communities economically so that they can make the administrative and legal decisions to spend the money on programming that makes sense for them. And in that, and that's how we deal with the education problem. That's how we deal with child welfare. We don't do it by telling people what to do. We don't fix things for them. Instead, we provide them the tools so that they can make their own communities the healthy and livable and ideally like competitive places that they want to live and that we might also want to live, right? Like I, I would like a world where people looked at it, First Nations communities and thought, 
yeah, I'd actually like to live there. And we should, and that should be a possible future for us. Like that's part of what it should be to be Canadian in this country is that we able to choose the communities that we want to live in. Now, doing that in First Nations communities will require, I think, a different set of commitments. So, uh, you know, like maybe you would have to learn the language. Maybe you'd have to be adopted into a clan. Maybe like all of these requirements in order to join that community. But the idea that you would want to join that community, that it offers you something valuable, that's, you know, that's the Canada that I really want to see. And I think that we actually have sort of the structural constitutional tools to do it. We don't need you know, another constitutional referendum. Um, really, the vision that we're talking about is modern day treaties, modern day comprehensive treaties, right? They provide a giant land base and taxation and governing authority that allows those governments to be self-sufficient. So this isn't like some, you know, really, really progressive vision from the future. This is, this is the bread and butter of what we do every day. And we, like I said, we don't need uh, to amend the constitution. We just pass some legislation. But what we need is Canadians of all stripes to wanna do this, to want change, to ask their governments, provincial and federal, what's the plan? What are you doing? And when they go, well, we'd like to increase funding for going, no, <laughs> like what's the plan? When we all start asking those questions, when we start making those demands of our government, that's when they're gonna move. And we as indigenous people, we are 5% of the population that we are spread out everywhere. So we are never going to affect electoral change on our own. Right? It, is, we, it is incumbent, as Stobos began by saying, that this is a shared project. And it's a project that I think is possible if we can commit ourselves, not to the, not, not, not to like programming decisions, but to this idea that equality is something that we really, really do believe in, that the equalization formula is a commitment that we're really going to commit to, uh, even though that means extending it to populations that heretofore we have been able to ignore. And I'm hoping that the day has come uh, when we're no longer able to ignore that disparity and we feel that it is incumbent upon us to act in some way. What we want to do and what we try to do towards the end of Valley is to show that there actually, there is a road forward and it's not unfamiliar to us. And what it really requires is just action on the part of all of us as citizens, as voters to make demands of politicians. Three to the mic drop. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>